fellowship with you. Lord, all our efforts, all our attitude changes, all our desires are meaningless, Lord, if you're not the one by the power of your Holy Spirit leading our every step, transforming our lives. Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now, we come in in humility and brokenness and desperation. We want to know you better. Minister to our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would take this marred and imperfect vessel and use it for your glory. Lord, that you would speak. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Good to see you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 25. Continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3 again on Sunday, so do read ahead. Now, tonight we're going to, it's kind of a unique chapter, really a lot going on in 34 verses. We're going to see the end of Abraham's life. Abraham, who we've been looking at for several months now. We watched him, you know, early on getting, getting his calling. And, and again, he finishes as a man of great faith. We'll talk about that tonight. But we know before he became a man of faith, he was a man of fear and a man of failure and a man of faithlessness. But that should be a word of encouragement to all of us. So we're going to see the end of Abraham's life, but we're also going to see the end of Ishmael's life. Ishmael's kind of been out of the picture for a while. He's really more known for the heritage he leaves behind than really what happens in his life in the last few chapters. He's kind of been removed from the scene because Abraham sent him away. We're then going to see the, that love story continue from last week of Isaac and Rebekah. If you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to grab, this, to grab the tape. They're always free. CDs are always free. I can think of very few places in Scripture with a better picture of the Lord, Heavenly Father, the Church, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit all in the Old Testament in such an incredible way. So let me encourage you, if you weren't here, grab the CD, you'll be blessed. So we're going to see Isaac and Rebekah, and now their marriage has begun. This match made in heaven is now moving forward, and we're going to find that they run into some difficulty. But then we're going to see them giving birth to, to Esau and Jacob. Again, some major you know, characters or players in the, in the Old Testament, some really great pictures we'll see in them as we move on into future chapters. And then finally, we're going to see, as they grow up a little bit, these twins, the, the, the conflict between them, and we're going to see Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup. So all that is in tonight's chapter. That's why I ran in here so late. But if you're a, if you're a, if you're a note taker, and I don't know if they had a chance to type this up or not, but if you're a note taker, I titled the message, Life Lessons for the Believer. Life Lessons for the Believer, or Life Lessons in the Life of the Believer. We're going to see, because this... This chapter changes gears so many times in a sense, but as I looked at it, each one of these, these paragraphs, each one of these separate thoughts has a, a, an exhortation or an example for us to follow. First, we're going to see remaining faithful even when you're hurting. You know, remaining faithful even when you're going through the toughest time you ever have in your life, even when you're going through a trial or things are really difficult. That's, this is Abraham, his life is summing up. Finally, fin- secondly, finishing strong, living a full and satisfied life. How do you really have a full and satisfied life? We'll talk about that as we look at the end of Abraham's. Number three, a godly heritage doesn't always lead to salvation. Now, this is in regards to Ishmael. Grew up in a godly home, had a godly heritage, had God's blessing upon his life, but as we're going to see, did not finish well. Fourthly, waiting on the Lord is not punishment, but preparation. Waiting on the Lord is not punishment. Sometimes we think that, don't we? God, how come you're making me wait so long? God knows what he's doing. We need to learn to trust him. Number five, a man of the world or a man of the spirit. This, of course, is Esau and Jacob. We're going to see the contrast in them. And then finally, trading God's blessing for a bowl of soup, living for now with no thought of tomorrow. Boy, that's, that's exactly a picture of the world we live in today. Amen? Living for now with no thought whatsoever of tomorrow. So let's begin. I know it seems all over the map a little bit because this chapter really is. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 25. And we've come to this place. Abraham, as we know, has just recently, his wife has died. Sarah, his wife of 
100, who knows how many years, maybe 100 years or 110 years, imagine being married that long. And his wife has died, and now, as we saw in the last chapter, being a godly dad, he wanted to make sure his son got a godly wife, so he sent Eleazar to go bring a wife back. Now Isaac's married. And so now we see this, this man, Abraham, this man of God. Boy, he's 140 years old at this point. Might be a good time to just, just pitch it in, right? Let's look what it says. It says, now, it says, Abraham took a wife. What? Dude's a buck 40 and he's getting married. He's 140 years old and he's getting married. Now, understand this. Abraham, you know, we have no idea how long we're going to live, but Abraham thought he was dying when he sent Eleazar to bring back a wife for his son. Guess how many more years he lives? 37. He lives 37 years after Sarah dies, 35 more years after Isaac is married. But I love this picture that Abraham took a wife. Now, his two dearest companions had left him. His wife and his son of, the son of promise. No doubt he still has you know, interaction with his son and his daughter-in-law. But now he's 140 years old and he's a lonely man. But there's truly nothing wrong. And I want to make this very clear. Some of this is really practical tonight. There is nothing wrong with getting married again. Your spouse has gone to be with the Lord. There's nothing wrong. Now, there's nothing wrong with remaining single the rest of your life either. But sometimes people feel like, well, I was married so long and it would be wrong for me to get married again. Well, here's a picture of Abraham, the father of faith, who after a hundred and some odd years of marriage gets married again. Now, this reminded me of a man and my dad. My dad taught the Sunshiners in Calvary San Jose for years and I would go in and fill in for him. And it was always fun because I'd go from the youth group to the Sunshiners. And I always love how the, you know, the senior citizens or whatever they call them always have a fun name for their group. It's never the old people. You know, you don't call it that, right? It's the young at heart or the, you know, something like that. So it's the sunshiners. But I love those people because, boy, did they pray for you and they meant it. And they were serious about it. And, boy, they were some of the most godly people I've ever met. Well, in that group was a man by the name of Franklin. And Franklin had been working with the Gideons for over 50 years handing out Bibles. And Franklin, at 93 years old, his wife of 60-some-odd years had gone to be with the Lord. At 93, he met a woman in the Sunshiners, and he got married again. 93. That was four or five years ago. He's like 97 or 98, and they're married still. You know what? And that was precious to me. I thought, here's a godly woman. Her husband went to be with the Lord. Here's a godly man. His wife went to be with the Lord, and God brought them together. They're companions. There's, you know, that's a wonderful thing. Now, again, it may not be God's highest for you. Maybe you're supposed to remain single. But just a word of encouragement. If you've, you were married for a long time, your husband, your wife has gone to be with the Lord, or they do someday in the future, it's okay. The Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. And I believe as we walk with the Lord and seek him, his desires become our desires. If you're content being single, God's given you that contentment. That's a good thing. Paul said it's better if you stay as I am. Why? Because someone who's married has divided passions. But, but someone who is married needs to make sure that they focus on their spouse and don't you know, allow anything else to become a ministry in front of that. So we have freedom in Christ to remain single or to remarry. Now, it says her name was Keturah. Now, Keturah, the only place, this is really the only place we really see her in Scripture. And her name means incense, and I like that. You know, a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what Keturah was. And all we know about her is what we see here. Now, later she's going to be referred to as a concubine, but we know that he marries her. And, and we're going to see in a few verses that it talks about the children of his concubines. I, I do not believe that that means that he did not marry them, because that's contrary to what the Bible says. But I believe it's talking about Hagar, and it's talking about Keturah, and the children that would come from them. But we see that God, you know, here's this man. Is, he could have just said, you know what? My wife's gone to be with the Lord, and my son's married now. I got nothing else left to accomplish. I'm just going to lay in my bed till I die. That is not God's highest for any of us, amen? As long as we're breathing in and out, God still wants to use us. He still wants to do things in us and through us. So let's be faithful until he takes our last breath. Now, it's possible that she may have been a maidservant in his home. But notice this. Here's, this. here's the even more surprising part than him getting married. Look what it says in verse 2. And she bore him, what? Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. At a buck forty, he had six more kids. 
Wow. Did God bring vigor back into this man's life or what? I mean, God restored. I mean, you know, with God, all things are possible. And here he is at 140, having six more sons. Wow. Now, this fulfills Genesis 17, 4, where it says that he would be the father of many nations. So we already have Ishmael and Isaac, and now we have six more sons. Now, Keturah's sons, as we're going to see as we continue on through the Old Testament, they are the fathers of various tribes that are going to be sent out east of Canaan. And just like the, the descendants of Ishmael, they're the fathers of the Arab peoples. Okay. Now, again, God loves them. God has a heart for them. But they are not the children of promise like Isaac is. So many nations trace their ancestry back to these sons of Keturah. Verse 3 there, it says, Jokshan begat Sheba and Dadan. Sheba and Dadan is traced to modern-day Saudi Arabia. So the people in Saudi Arabia that are from that region are descendants of, of Sheba and Dadan all the way back here in Genesis chapter 25. Then it says, And the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Lethisham, and Laumam, and the sons of Midian were Ephar, Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abada, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Now Midian, if you'll remember Moses, who does Moses marry? A Midianite. So the Midianites, okay, they're all coming from Abraham. So guys, the Arab peoples and the Semitic or the Jewish peoples are all descendants of Abraham. And so you'll even see now in the Muslim faith, they hold Abraham in his high esteem because they're descendants of Abraham. But where they missed it is they believe that Ishmael was the son of promise instead of Isaac. And so they believe Muhammad is the prophet instead of Jesus Christ. Guys, that's a fatal error. That's a huge error. So we see Father Abraham. Boy, his name really means it now, doesn't it? Here he is with six kids after a buck 40. Now verse 5. Now watch what happens. So now he has eight, eight children, and it says, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Abraham gave everything, all the inheritance went to Isaac. Wait a minute, what about the seven other sons? We'll see about them in a moment. God is faithful to take care of them as well. But Isaac is the son of promise. Isaac is the one that God said, through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God said that through Isaac the Messiah would come. And so, though he's... 175 years, when he, years old when he dies, as he's nearing his death, he doesn't lose sight of what God has called him to do. And God has called him to raise up Isaac as the son of promise, to make sure that everybody knows that this is the line of the Messiah. Yes, I love all my sons, but Isaac is the one. Isaac is the chosen one. And so I appreciate just even at a, at a late age that he doesn't lose sight of what God has called him to do. He was promised to God, to Abraham and to Sarah. If you'll remember that story, when they first heard that Isaac was going to be born, they laughed. They laughed in doubt. When the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, shows up and tells them they're going to have a child, they didn't believe it. They laughed. They mocked. But later, those laughters of doubt turned to laughters of joy when indeed they had a son. You know, Sarah had been barren and mocked, and she'd been praying and waiting on the Lord and had given up hope on having children. And then God, in his graciousness comes in and gives her a child. So Isaac is a son promised by God. He was offered on Mount Moriah. None of the other boys were. Do you understand the significance here? Isaac was taken up Mount Moriah. He carried the wood on his back. He was the one that went up to Mount Calvary. He is the picture of Jesus Christ. None of these other boys are. Now, they all have the ability to give their life to the Lord. But he's the one who's going to inherit Canaan. He's the one through whom the Messiah would come. And he's the one who Eleazar was sent out to bring a spouse from among his people. So Abraham's nearing his death. He makes it very clear so there's no confusion. Isaac is the son of promise. I'll provide for the needs of my other sons, but this one is the one that God has chosen. Now, that also means he's going to be the patriarch to the next generation. He's going to be the godly example. He's going to be the one that takes Abraham's mantle if you will. He's going to be the one that now is the, the leader, the one that all the other believers will look to. So to make sure that there was no confusion, verse 6, 
Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. While he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from his son to the country of the east. What did he do? He separated Isaac from his brothers. But he separated them because he did not want them to in any way come in and try to take away what God had called Isaac to do. Come in and try to infringe upon it. You know, this is a very clear picture that we are to be separated from the world. That we need to be faithful and obedient to what God has called us to do. So he sent them eastward. Abraham gives gifts to all his sons. He gave them the flocks they needed, the herds they needed. And they were sent out of Canaan to be separated from Isaac. And their descendants, as we'll see in Judges, are called the children of the east. They were not to share in the blessing God had for him. Now, the way Abraham gave out his blessings is a picture of what's still happening today. And we should not take this lightly, and we should not act like this is unfair in any way. But here's the truth. God blesses all men to a certain degree. Amen? Doesn't he give them life? Doesn't he give them breath? Doesn't he give them free will and an opportunity to know him? Doesn't he reach out to them and love? The answer is yes. But guess what? He has special blessings for those who were adopted into his family. Those who become the children of God. Those who become the sons and daughters of his promise through the shed blood of his son by giving our life to him. You know what? We have a greater inheritance, don't we? We have the promise of heaven. And we too, just like the Isaac picture here, we're not to uh, you know, miss our inheritance by being mingled with the things of the world. Isaac, I want you separated from them. I have a special calling upon your life. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. I had a call this week. Someone asked me, Pastor Dave, someone told me we're not supposed to be hanging out with the world. How are we going to witness to them then? Guys, can I encourage you with something? You're either having an impact on the world or the world's having an impact on you. And we need to be going, and if we're spending time with unbelievers, our number one focus needs to be to share the love of Jesus Christ with them. And if you are not strong in your faith, you need not be hanging out with them. Amen? Do we become like the people we hang out with? What's the answer? I said this a hundred times. I used to look at the youth group. Look, if you're hanging out with the potheads, you're a pothead. Amen? If you're hanging out with the jocks, you're probably a jock. If you're hanging out, you know, the people you hang out with is usually a reflection of who you are. All I got to do is look at your friends. I'll have a good idea who you are. And for Isaac, it was this picture. I have a special inheritance on your life. I do not want it to be tainted in any way. I'm going to send your brothers far away to the east. I still love them. I still want to bless them. I still want to minister to them. But Isaac, you have a special calling on your life. Guys, we don't do it because of arrogance. We do it in obedience to God's command. Amen? Now, do we go minister to the world? Of course we do. Well, how are we going to minister to them if we don't ever spend time with them? I'm not saying we don't spend time with them. Jesus went and ministered to the tax collectors. Amen? But he's Jesus, right? He wouldn't tell us, hey, you're struggling with alcohol? Go down to the bar and witness to people. That's a really good, not a bad idea. Amen? You're really, if you're struggling with something, stay as far away from it as you can. And here we have this very clear picture, this very clear exhortation. And here's Abraham, 175 years old. He's lost his wife. His son's now married. He could say, I'm 140 years old and I'm lonely. I'm just going to pack it up. Instead, he's faithful for 35 more years, raises six more sons, has another wife, and continues to keep his eyes on God's calling and to make sure that everybody knows there's no Confusion, confusion that Isaac is the one whom God has called. Guys, we, have, we are heirs. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the Bible says. The inheritance that Isaac had is nothing compared to the one we've got now. Amen? Point number two. Life lessons from the believer. Remaining faithful even when you're hurting. That's what Abraham did. 37, 35 more years after Isaac's marriage. Remain faithful. What a godly example. But also, not only should we remain faithful, but finish strong. Understanding, you know, living a life that's full and satisfied. I love this description here. Look at verse 7. It says, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. So Abraham's days were numbered before the foundation of the world by Almighty God. He knew exactly how long he was going to live. And Abraham was faithful to the last day. 
The reason we see him in Hebrews chapter 11 is not how he did the first hundred years, but really how he did the last 50. It was who he became. Guys, here's the good news. You may have been totally blowing it up to this point. It's not too late to have a life sold out for God and to finish strong for him. Amen? It's not too late. And he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten, the Bible says. And he can take all the mistakes, and we've blown it, and turn that test into a testimony, to turn those trials and difficulties and even our, our, our total ungodly behavior and turn it around to be a testimony to his grace and the transforming power of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And here we have this example of Abraham who finished strong. He had been faithless. He'd been fearful. But in the end, he was a mighty man of God. We're all indestructible until God's through with us. And this was his appointed time. And then it says this. Then Abraham breathed his last. So Abraham now passes from the scene. One of the most important men in the Bible. He's in God's hall of faith. You know how many times his name is mentioned in the New Testament? Seventy. Abraham's name is mentioned 70 times in the New Testament. Only Moses, 80 times, is mentioned more of all the Old Testament characters. So Abraham was a man who God had used. And and again, he breathes his last, but praise God that even though he was a man of faith, God does not hide his frailties because he was a man who was far from perfect. He had faithlessly fled in the famine. He had purposely lied in a time of fear. He, again, was father of faithlessness and fear, but he became a man of unparalleled faith. We know, to me, the, one of the most outstanding chapters in all of the Bible is Genesis 22, when he takes his son, his only son Isaac, up on Mount Moriah. See, the reason he was able to focus in the end that he is the son of promise and make sure he was the only heir is he was willing to lay down his son's life earlier. The reason he was willing to live his life for the Lord is he was willing to lay it down. And so we see here that there's this godly man, this man of great faith, the patriarch. He breathes his last, and he breathes it walking with God rather than walking in his own understanding. Now look what it says in verse 7, the rest of verse 8, excuse me. It says that Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. Now, he breathes his last. If you have an old King James, it says he gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. You know what I like about that? It means nobody took his life from him. God's day, his, days, his life was not taken from him. He cheerfully gave it up and placed his life into his father's hands. Then it says, at a good old age. Again, as God had promised him earlier, that you know, he would live to be a, a good old age. And Abraham didn't face the burdens that old age brings, but in God's perfect timing, he was ready to go. It says, an old man and full. Now, your Bible probably says full of life or full of years. But the of years or of life is in italics, isn't it? The reason for that is it's not there in the original text. That's words put in to help us understand potentially what the meaning was. But I kind of like the fact that it says he died and that he was an old man and full. Literally, the word there means satisfied. He was satisfied. Guys, you know what? When you follow God, there's no more satisfying life on this planet. You could be the president of the United States. You could be a, an athlete that everybody you know, cheers for. You could be famous. You could be wealthy. You could have all the things the world wants. And you know what? A lot of those people commit suicide. A lot of those people, their lives are a disaster. Look at a president after he's been in office eight years. It looks like he's age 50. And the truth is that all the things the world has to offer that we can strive for, there's no real value in them when it comes to eternity. But guys, when we follow God with our whole heart, There's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing that brings us a greater amount of joy and total peace. I love that he was full. He was satisfied. And he did not live till the world was weary of him, but till he was weary of the world. He was ready to go home. And so I love that. He was full of years, it says, and was gathered to his people. Now, this is an expression of a personal continuance beyond death that you're gathered to the same people you spent time with here on earth. Now, that's a scary thought for some of us. Literally, the people 
and I believe this to be true, the people you spend most of your time with here on earth are more than likely going to be the same people you spend your time with in eternity when there is no time. Amen? So if you're hanging out with the world, don't be surprised if you spend eternity with them. But if you're hanging out with God's people, you're going to be spending eternity with God's people. Amen? What do we have in common with the world? It's no fun to hang out with the world. By the way, they're not going to like you much if you're living for God. But be salt and light. You know what's interesting? The place where he goes right now, 1,900 years later in Luke 16, is referred to as Abraham's bosom. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but see, all the believers who died in the Old Testament did not enter immediately into heaven. They entered into Sheol, not hell, Sheol, place of the departed. And one part, it was called Abraham's bosom. And one part of that was a place where the believers dwelt. And they're in a place of, you know, waiting upon the crucifixion. Guys, they couldn't enter into heaven until Jesus died on the cross. You understand that? Those who did not, who rejected God, were in a place of torment. We know that by looking at Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man was, you know, lavished and had all the things of the world. Lazarus was a beggar seated at his gates. But after they died, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and the rich man is in the place of torment. And we know that they could look across. He could look across and see Lazarus on the other side. And even asked if Lazarus could dip his finger in the water and come bring him some relief. And, and, you know, the Lord says to him, no, he cannot come from that side to you. He cannot. Why? Sin has put a big, huge crevice there. You can't go from from the place of torment to the place of, of peace with Almighty God. It's impossible. It has to happen here and now. And if you remember what the rich man says, go back and tell my family. Please. I don't want them to come here. Every time I do a funeral, just about, I use Luke 16 because the truth is that every person who has ever died, if they could come back for 30 seconds, they wouldn't ask you how you're doing. They wouldn't get caught up in what's happening with the grandkids. They would look right at you and say, heaven is he- and hell is real and you need to get right with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter which side they were on, they would tell you the same thing. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, there's some people theology that's a total train wreck where they say Jesus went into hell and suffered. He said, it's finished. Amen. No more suffering after it's finished. He did not go into hell. I hear that on Christian TV all the time, and it makes me sick to my stomach because it's absolutely not true. So don't buy into that garbage. He had to become a wormy thing and suffer. No, he didn't. He died on the cross, and again, it's finished, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. Well, during that time, he did go into Abraham's bosom. Into the lower parts of the earth was not tormented in hell, but he went in and he released, he preached to them, it says. We're going to talk about this on Sunday. He preached to them, those who had, who had believed, and they, and they were able to enter in now into the presence of Almighty God. Solves that mystery. But Abraham, he leaves right here, and he goes to be with his people. Who are his people? The believers. Those who believe in the true and the living God. And now he's going to spend eternity with the same people who he walked with here on earth. Again, death gathers us to our people. Verse 9. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite. Now a couple things. Notice two things we see about what must have been an incredible funeral, I'm assuming. This is Abraham. He had many servants. He had many people living. And he was the man of God that people looked to as the man of great faith. And at the same time, all we see is who buried him and where he was buried. I find it interesting that Isaac and Ishmael, who the last time we saw them were at each other's throats. At least Ishmael was, right? He was mocking his little brother. And Sarah said, you got to get him out of here. Send him packing. But have you ever noticed how death brings people back together? Have you ever noticed how people fighting over the dumbest thing and then somebody that they both love dies and all of a sudden it's like, that was really pitiful. I can't believe we were arguing over something that dumb. And they all show up to the funeral and realize, you know what? Life and death is far more important than whatever it is we were arguing about. But Ishmael and Isaac come together. But what that shows me too is that they both still honored and respected their father. Ishmael still looked at his dad, still respected him, still had love for him even though he'd been sent away. Shows me that though he was sent away, he was done it. He was done, it was done so with love. So, we see here that they buried him. Where was he buried? He was buried in the cave of Machpelah. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we saw 
Abraham go, and the only part of the land of promise that he actually purchased to own was this cave. And he purchased it as a burial site for Sarah. But what's significant about it is he bought it in the land of promise that he did not yet possess. Because God said that his descendants would own the land of promise, and he wanted to make sure he, his wife, and he and his descendants were buried where his people were going to live. So it was an act of faith to buy the burial spot in the land of promise because he believed what God had said. God said that we're gonna, I'm going to possess it, that my descendants are going to possess it. I believe that. I bought the plot, and so that's where he was buried. He was buried with his wife, Sarah. Again, a picture of how we are brought together with those that we love after we die. Again, especially in a case where, you know, husband and wife, married. now we're not married in heaven. Some of you are going, no. But no, we're not married in heaven. But you know what? We're still going to be brothers and sisters in heaven. We're still going to be family in heaven, amen? And we should look forward to that. And it says, It says, in the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased for the sons of Heth, then Abraham was buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Laai Roy. Now, what's interesting about this, Isaac was now the only surviving member of the messianic line. He's it. It's only him. His dad has died. All the other brothers are not of the messianic line, and God blesses him. Abraham remained faithful to the end. He watched over his son. He's delivering a godly inheritance. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's given it to his son. He's raised up his son in a godly way. And now God is going to bless his son. But notice where he dwelt. He's dwelling in the very same city where Eleazar brought him his wife. And we're going to see later that this is the same place where uh, the Lord appeared to Hagar when she had fled, when she'd been kicked out. So in that very same spot, now he's dwelling there, and the place means the God who sees, the God who lives and sees. So he's dwelling in the place where the, of where the God who lives and sees. I love that. And that's where Isaac is dwelling with his wife. So life lessons in the life of a believer. Number one, remaining faithful even when you're hurting. He could have just checked out at 140. He didn't. He remained faithful. He continued to pursue God, and God continued to use him. He finished strong. He lived a full and satisfied life. Now, kind of things kind of turn a little sad here, but a godly heritage doesn't always lead to salvation. Look at verse 12. Now, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. Now, Ishmael means God hears. And so when the Lord, the angel of the Lord, appeared to Hagar in Beer Lahai Roy, when he showed up there, she was weeping at that well. And as she was weeping there, he came and said to her, I want you to go back to Abraham and Sarah. You're going to have a child. His name is going to be Ishmael. God hears. So the name of the well she named the God who lives and sees, and she named her son because God told her to, God hears. So God lives and sees, and God hears, and he knows. She was weeping. She was headed back to Egypt. She thought nobody cared about her, and the Lord showed up. And I love that because sometimes we look at Hagar, and we want to push her to the side, but God didn't. God loved Hagar, and he loves Ishmael. Now, we do see, though, that we're reminded of how Ishmael came into being. Because it says there, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. Why did that happen? God had promised Abraham, you're going to have a child. Thirteen years went by. Hadn't happened yet. I think I need to give God a hand. And so his wife comes to him and says, you've all heard this, take my maidservant. And we don't see any arguing from Abraham. Okay? Take my cute little Egyptian maidservant as your second wife. Done. And they have a child. And his wife gets bitter. And as I've said before, if someone gives us ungodly counsel and we take it, don't be surprised when they come back after, after us later and blame us for it. And that's exactly what happened. But you know what? Why was Hagar even there? Because Abraham had been afraid during a time of famine and he went down into Egypt. Had he not gone into Egypt, Hagar would have never even been there. Guys, fear and faithlessness have consequences down the road that we don't even recognize. 
They'll come many times, you know, sometimes years later, and that's exactly what has happened. So Ishmael, born out of fear and faithlessness, Abraham and Sarah's fleshly attempt to force God's hand, you know, doing things their own way, and yet God in his grace had promised to bless Ishmael. Even though his parents were, had missed God when they did it, even though it was fear that brought him down to Egypt, God still said, I'm going to bless your son. Guys, that's the God we serve. Too often we want to say, well, that child is, is dealing with the consequences of their parents. That's the reason they're lost. Because You know what? Our parents can certainly have an impact on us, but our God is far more gracious than that. Amen? He doesn't look and say, oh, your parents are a mess, so I got no love for you. That's not the God that we serve. And we see here that even though Ishmael's parents, you know, both, both Abraham and Sarah had blown it, really even more than Hagar, it was their fault. Hagar didn't come up with the idea, they, and she was a servant to them. She kind of had to go along with it. She might have looked at Abraham and went, ew, yeah, who knows what, you know. But what happens is God says, that, you know, he looks at Ishmael, and he has a love for him, and he's going to bless him. So he's named by God, God who hears, promised to make him a great nation. And now those promises are about to be fulfilled in the following verses. But I also want to say this. It also says, of Ishmael in Genesis 16, that he would be a wild man and his hand would be against every man and every man's hand would be against him. Why? Not because God didn't love him, but because he chose to live a life in rebellion against God. So now look what it says there in the rest of the, the verse. It says, And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael, by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nabajoth, then Cater, and Abiel, and Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, and Masa. Now, what's interesting as we start going through the names of the, the offspring of the God who hears, God does bless them. God does provide for them. God had told Ishmael, I'm going to make you a great nation. And sure enough, Jacob, the father of Israel, has 12 sons. And guess how many sons Isaac's, or, uh, Ishmael's going to have? 12. God does bless him. But, God, but you know what? But a, a godly heritage and blessing from the Lord does not equal salvation. Because Ishmael still has free will. It is interesting, though. I love to look up meanings of names. But it's interesting. Mishma means hear. Duma means keep silent. And Masa means bear all things. And it's interesting. In James chapter 1, it says, Be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And truly, that's it. Really, almost that verse encapsulated in those three names. Their names point to God. Sometimes we think, oh, Ishmael, he was an ungodly guy. No, he had a godly heritage. He goes back and buries his father. There was still God's blessing upon his life. There was still his father loving him, even though he was sent away from Isaac. But he still had a choice to make. He had a godly heritage, but he still had free will. And it says in verse 15, Hadar, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names. And by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes, according to their nations. The word settlements there literally means castles. These guys, though, they were living out in the desert. They weren't just living in tents. They built great cities. So Ishmael and his descendants had you know, a great amount from the world's perspective. They had a godly heritage. All these men named here had a godly grandpa. They'd been taught the truth about who God is, but yet... Sadly, they chose not to walk with him. Then it says in verse 17, These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now, could that have a different meaning than Abraham being gathered to his people? What's the answer? Yes. Because who are Ishmael's people? After we see him being sent away, all we see of the descendants of Ishmael is idolatry, ungodliness. They become the enemies of Isaac, become the enemies of Israel. And sadly, we know that all those nations, even to this day, are still the enemies of Israel. And they came through Ishmael. Now, God only knows for sure, but I have an idea that he did not in any way, no God, because there's no evidence of it. He was gathered to his people. So that can be heaven for those who are walking with the Lord and are of the people of God. It can be that 
Or it can be, if you're of a godless nation, a godless people, it can be gathered to being separated from God. Now, I also find it interesting. You go back, and it says, Abraham full of life. So Abraham was full. He was satisfied. But then Ishmael, it says there of Ishmael, he breathed his last and died. The word literally there means he fell. So we have one who's full and one who fell. We have one who's satisfied. Why? Because he's walking with the Lord. And one who fell and was literally hanging on to life with both hands. Why? Because he was afraid of what was next. Guys, Christians die well. Believers, in this case, weren't Christians yet, die well. Why? Because we know where we're headed. It doesn't mean we might not have fear of of the pain of of a disease or an ailment. But guys, we should not fear death at all. Because death has no sting for us. Amen? But here we have Abraham dying, and it says he's full. But it says of Ishmael, he fell. And he fell and was gathered to his own people. He grew up hearing the word. He had attended his father's funeral. But sadly, we see that he had disregarded his father's teaching and more than likely is spending eternity separated from him. Again, only God knows for sure, but there's no evidence that he walked with God in any way. And then it says, he, it says in verse 18, they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. So now just a little geography lesson. Havilah is the, the very southern area. You're headed toward uh, Arabia. And then Shur is what we know as the Sinai Peninsula, where Mount Sinai is. And so in that area is where the descendants of Ishmael dwelt. And guess what? They still dwell there today. Isn't that amazing? You go thousands of years later, and they're still there. The Arab people still inhabit those lands. So, life lessons for the believer. Next point is, waiting on the Lord is not punishment, but preparation. Now, sadly, we see here that that he had all this exposure to the truth, and he didn't follow God. And some of us, I pray there's not one person in this room, before we move on to the next point, that falls into that same category as Ishmael. Amen? Guys, coming to church, Christian parents, Christian family, reading your Bible, Christian bumper sticker on your car, listening to K-Love on your radio station, having commentaries in your home will not save you. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not totally surrendered to Him, if you have not been filled with the Spirit of the living God, you are not saved. Amen? We need to be filled again. We need to be walking in the fullness of the Spirit. We've been you know, we're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We've got to move past religion and into a relationship. We do not want to fall into the trap. I pr- Lord, help. And there's even one person here. You've been going to church for 10 years, but you, you're not, you know what? You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You don't know what it means to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Don't leave here without Him. Amen? Give your life to Him. Now, waiting, it's not punishment, but preparation. Look at verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife. Now again, last week we saw that the son of promise did not marry till the age of 40. He waited for the woman God had for him. Imagine if Isaac had jumped the gun. We would not be reading about him. God wouldn't allow it. God knew he had a plan for Isaac's life and he would not allow him to mess it up. He had a dad who who said, Eliezer, go get my son, a godly woman, from among our people and bring her back to my son. Praise God for dads who care enough about their kids to supervise who they date. Amen? My kids aren't all that thrilled about it, but I've done it, and I will continue to do it until all four of them are married. Then I got grandkids, and here it comes, right? Because, you know, that's what dads should do, and that's what moms should do. Amen? It's not being nosy. It's being a parent. Gotta love your kids enough. It's not a popularity contest. They got enough friends. Be their parent. And so he waited for the woman God had for him. Eleazar, the picture of the Holy Spirit, was sent out by his father. And praise God for Rebecca, who comes back never having seen him before, but has faith enough, even without seeing him, that this was the man she was to marry. Again, a picture how we have faith in Jesus Christ, whom we have yet to see yet. Rebecca being a picture of the church. And so I love this picture here. He waits for her. Forty years go by. His wife is brought to him. Now you must think, well, hey, he's waited 40 years. Waiting's over, right? Finally got his wife. Life is good. Verse 21. 
And it says, for the rest of verse 20, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Man, have we seen this before? Abraham and, and Sarah had given up on having children. When the Lord came and told them they were going to have them, they thought, you've got to be kidding me. So that means they prayed until they gave up. No doubt Isaac knew how, he had, how his parents had him. They knew, he knew all they had gone through. And now he's finally got his wife. Certainly the waiting is over. And guess what? She can't have kids. But God promised that through my line, the Messiah would come. That's only possible if we have children. Now, does he follow the example of Abraham and Sarah? Praise God, he doesn't. He doesn't go find himself a Hagar, aren't you glad? He doesn't go, well, that's what dad did. Call his wife in, you know, babe, we've been married a long time now. Not quite happening. You know what dad did? Why don't you go find me your best looking maidservant and bring her on over? He didn't do that. Praise God that he waited upon the Lord. He knew God's promise and he knew that God was going to be faithful to it. But you know how long he waited? 20 years. So he was 40 when he got married, which is a little bit older. And now he's 60, almost 60, and still no children. But praise God that this is what happens when we go through trials. It brings us to our knees. Amen? Waiting on God is part of God's preparation to bring us to the end of ourselves, to make us desperate for Him, and to get us looking up. Guys, if everything always happened right away, we can, get, we can start to think we can do it on our own. We can start to become really self-sufficient. We can just say, hey, who needs God? I, you know, I'm just cruising through life. But you know what? When things start to take some time, and we have to wait, and we have to trust the Lord, and things get difficult, it makes us look up. It's not punishment it's preparation. No doubt as he prayed for Rebecca to come, how excited he must have been when that, he saw that camel coming in a distance with Eleazar and hoping that his wife was with them. And then when she came and came down off the camel, and there she was, veil over her face, just the joy and excitement of answered prayer. Here she finally is. Well, now he's facing that same thing again. His wife is barren. But he doesn't just sit back and go, well, God promised, so I ain't gonna sweat it. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He pleads. He prays with great fervency. He asks the Lord to bring his wife a child, to bring he and his wife a child. Guys, the accomplishments of God's promise are always sure. He is faithful 100% of the time. Amen? He's never, he never makes a mistake. Yet sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's not as quick as we want it to be. By our, you know, our current circumstances, we can't see how it's going to happen sometimes. We think God must have fallen asleep. And you know what God's doing? He's teaching us to be patient. He's teaching us to wait and to trust and to rest and believe on Him. He's preparing us for what's next. So He pleads with the Lord. He intercedes on behalf of His wife. Hey, guys. This man of God is interceding on behalf of His wife. When was the last time you interceded on behalf of your wife? Wives, when was the last time you interceded on behalf of your husband? We need to do that more, amen? I know I do. Anybody else? We need to do that more. And he intercedes on behalf of his wife. The son of promise is praying for his wife, and the result is intimacy with God, a greater love and compassion for his precious bride. I love the persistence in his prayer. We face problems, how do we resolve them? Do we go out and try to fix it, bring a Hagar in, or would you keep seeking God? He kept seeking God, and God is going to bless that. He continued to pray. So waiting, it's not God's punishment, but God's preparation. He answers in his time according to his perfect will, and may we never fall into the trap of trying to force his hand. So he pleaded with the Lord because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So he prayed, and God answered prayer, but he didn't pray for a week. It was 20 years later. Sometimes we read these verses. Oh, he prayed, and God answered his prayer. I wish God would do that for me. Okay, you got 20 years, because that's how long it was in this text. Next point, lessons for the life of the believer. A man of the world or a man of the spirit. Now watch this contrast here. Verse 22. But the children struggled together within her. She said, if all is well, why am I like this? Now this is her first pregnancy, and no doubt she's heard from other women what being pregnant is like. But she's like, something's wrong here. And you know what? Something is. Because not only did God answer their prayer, he answered their prayer with twins. 
But you know what? They're twins that didn't like each other in the womb. They're fighting in the womb. Can you imagine? They're brawling in the womb. And we know that because that's what the, the Bible tells us. So, you know, the Bible says that John the Baptist was filled with, his, with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. The Bible says that, you know, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. People say, when? That doesn't seem fair. But God knows who we're going to become. It's not God foreordaining and making us be someone he's going to hate. He recognizes someone who will reject him and that he hates that. Amen? That's the difference. And so she's wondering why, why this is going on. But notice what this trial produces. So she went to inquire of the Lord. Things were going difficult. She couldn't quite understand what was happening within her. So what does she do? She runs to the Lord. She seeks his face in prayer. Verse 23. And the Lord said to her, that means God, God answers her prayer. And here's what he tells her. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now understand something. That's the exact opposite of the way that it normally went. The firstborn received the birthright. The firstborn received the blessing. The firstborn would then be the new patriarch of the family when the father died. He would get a double portion of uh, the inheritance, twice as much as anybody else, and he would now have the place of spiritual blessing and spiritual headship in the family. But she's told before they're born, that's not what's going to happen here. The older is going to serve the younger. I, I have my eyes on Jacob. I have my hand upon him. And so when the days were 24 were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first one came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Harry. That's what Esau means. You know, you didn't know the name Harry was in the Bible, did you? There it is. Esau means hairy. Can you imagine if you did that with all your kids? You waited till they were born and you found like a feature they had. And you might be crooked-nosed Johnston or pointy head or, you know what I mean? You know, because kids, you know, when they're born, that's not their best moment usually. <laughs> kind of bruised up usually, right? You got to give them a little time to heal. Out comes Harry. He's red and he's covered in hair. He was like, I don't know, cashmere sweater or something, right? Here's, here's Esau. He's covered in hair. He's hairy. So they named him Harry. And then out comes his brother. I, 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 you know, sometimes weird things. I thought of a hobbit. I don't know why, but you know. So it's in verse 26. It says, after his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So Esau's being born, and there they're still fighting. Jacob's holding on to his heel as they're being born. So out comes Esau, and there's Jacob coming out right behind him, holding on to his heel as he comes out. And so... They're born, and look what it says there. Afterward, came out his hand, took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. You know what Jacob means? Heel catcher. Harry and heel catcher. That's what they named their kids. Now, Jacob can also mean supplanter or deceitful one. It's not a good name. It's not the name you want. You know, as far, now, the man Jacob becomes godly man. But God's going to change his name to Israel as well. So, he, his name means Harry. Jacob's name means heel catcher. And notice that they're, these guys are totally different. Now, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. There's the 20 years of waiting for children. So they came out struggling with each other. He took his brother by the heel. And now their lives have come out. And now they're going to be two brothers living in the same home. But as we saw before, they're two nations. Verse 27. So the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. What Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now I want to say this. I think this verse gets abused a lot. Because people like to pick on Jacob. They like to say, well, Esau was a man's man. He's out hunting, you know, and killing bears and stuff and dragging them in and eating them. And Jacob is back in the tent with his mom. Have you ever heard people talk like that? You know, he was smooth-skinned. He was the geeky guy back at the, you know, you know what you call the geeks from your high school? Boss, right? I mean, isn't that what happens? The guys you make fun of in school that have no friends, and they end up getting the PhD, and they're the guy you're working for one day. But here's the point. They, you, people start to make fun of Jacob, and they mock him. Don't ever do that, because do you know that Jacob become, is a mighty man of God? And Jacob's name, where it says there that he was a mild man, I spent some time looking this up because it bothers me when I hear it. And I don't think it's consistent with Scripture. 
The Bible talks about, refers to Esau as a fornicator and a profane man in Hebrews. Talks about him in that way, that he's a man of the world. He is a man of sport and recreation, but he's a self-reliant man that rests upon himself, much like Esau. But Jacob was not a man of the world. It says he was a plain man who dwelt in tents. But it says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign man dwelling in tents. But when you look up that word for mild man, the word literally means perfect, complete, or mature. It's the same word when you get to Job chapter 1, verse 8. A perfect and upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. The word for perfect there is the same word for mild here. So when people try to paint Jacob as being some wimpy little mama's boy hanging out in the kitchen, it's not accurate to Scripture. Am I the only one that's ever heard that before? And here's who he is. He's, not, he's a godly man. He's a mature man. That's what the word means. And so you have a worldly man and a godly man. And we see the contrast in them. Jacob had learned of God's promises from his mother's prayer. He knew that he was going to be the one that God would raise up. We're going to see he's not perfect as he blows it. Verse 28. Now, parents don't do this. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Don't do that. Don't have favorite kids. Amen? Now, can you see how a dad would like Harry? That's my boy. Going out there and killing a bear and dragging it in here. That's my son, right? I mean, you can see how he's going to play football this year, and he's going to break all the records, and he's going to be quite a man. That's my, that's my son. You know, you can see how a dad would do that. But you know what? We must never do that. Man looks on the outward appearance, and God looks on the heart. And we need to love all our kids equally and never play favorites. Amen? And, and, and I mean, Lord, if I can't exalt you enough, be, be careful to never even have the appearance of that. So, he liked his son's physical prowess, but Rebecca loved that her son was a, ma- a godly man. So she loved Jacob. And again, from a point of view, you can see how they could fall into those traps. But again, this was not God's highest, that, that children would be divided by their parents. And the birthright belonged to Esau by physical birth, but by spiritual birth, it belongs to Jacob. So Esau had, is a man of the world, and when it comes to spiritual things, we're going to finish up now, we're going to see that he has no real thought of spiritual things. He's so pursuing the world, it's not even in his mind. Jacob is a man of God, a mature man, a spiritually mature man, and he's a man that has a heart for spiritual things. So when you bring these two together, we're going to finish off by looking at this contrast. So life lessons from the believer, trading God's blessings for a bowl of soup living for now with no thought of tomorrow. Look what it says. Now, Jacob cooked a stew. See, people pick on him because he cooked. Although I think there's a lot of women that would love a guy who cooks. Now, Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Now, Jacob made preparations to feed himself and his parents, and Esau would usually go out into the field, kill something, bring it back, and prepare it for himself. But in this case, either he went out and came back empty-handed, or he came back and he was too tired to make himself something to eat. So he's going to sit down at the table, and you know, here's, he smells the food that Jacob is cooking. Verse 30, and Esau said to Jacob, please feed me some red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name became Edom, that means red, because of the choice he's going to make, the trade he's going to make. He's going to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. And that boy, you do something like that, it's going to follow you around for a while. So Esau was hungry. He wanted to be satisfied physically. And Jacob, you know, knew the heart of his brother. And so now, again, being the heel catcher a little bit here, look at verse 32. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Okay, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you a bowl of soup. You give me the spiritual blessing. Let me be the patriarch after dad dies. Let me have the double portion. Now, how stupid is that trade? But you see that a fleshly man has no thoughts of tomorrow. He only thinks about satisfying his belly right now. I'll deal with the consequences tomorrow, tomorrow. I don't want to worry about it right now. All I want is to walk out of here full. I want my flesh to be satisfied. I don't care what the consequences... Boy, does that sound like the world. Just give me what I want now. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. No thoughts of tomorrow, thoughts only of the immediate. Isaiah 23, 22, it says, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. 
And that's the attitude of Esau. So look what he says. Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Esau is going to live a long time. You know what he's saying? Look, I'm not going to live that much longer after dad dies anyway. It really doesn't matter to me. That's down the road at some point. So if you want to give me a bowl of soup for my birthright, deal. We thought when the, you know, the Indians sold Manhattan for 24 bucks, that was a bad deal. This, this is a bad deal. This is the worst deal ever. Can you imagine trading something significant, trading the spiritual, trading the, the blessing of God? You know what else this meant? You would inherit the land of promise, your descendants, that through you would come the Messiah. He trades all of that for a bowl of soup. Guys, what are we trading our inheritance for? What are we trading the heavenlies for? What is it we've made a, big, a bigger priority than what we really need to be focused on? Then Jacob said, swear to me this day. So he swore to him and sold, him his, sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Can't you just see Harry sitting down and just scarfing down his food? Can't you see it? No thought about what he just traded it for. Irrelevant to him. It's so sad when we go out and we live lives contrary to God's will with no thought of the consequences, no thought of the impact on our family, no thought on our impact of our relationship with the Lord. Esau sold his birthright, his inheritance, his spiritual blessing for a bowl of soup, and he sat down and enjoyed it. And again, the world hasn't changed much since then. Guys, what are we trading it for? Is it money? Is it the advancement of our career? Is it better looks? Is it a relationship? Is it worldly pleasures? Is it entertainment? Do we, have, do we think about eternity every single day? We ought to be thinking about it every single minute. Amen? And then it says, And Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. Literally, he, he had hatred for it. He, he had no desire, no concern, no thought about eternity whatsoever. Now let me finish off by saying this. Jacob blows it here too. Let me tell you how, how Jacob blows it. God had already spoken to his mom, and he had already been told, the birthright is yours. If God tells us something, we don't have to strive in the flesh to make it happen. Jacob tricks his brother into giving to him what was already his. Esau couldn't have given it up anyway. Do you understand it wasn't Esau's to give? And Jacob didn't need to trick him out of it because it already belonged to him. Guys, we need not you know, use ungodly measures in pursuit of godly things, right? Oh, I'm doing this for the Lord. I cheated on my taxes so I can tithe more, right? You know, we don't, we don't circumvent God so we think we can do God's will. Never sell God's plan for your life at any price. Never sell God's plan for your life at any price. I know we're a little over, but let me just read this to you because I want to talk about two lessons we learned, and then we'll close. Your inheritance. What are you leaving for your kids? God bless Abraham. Raising a godly son in Isaac making sure he was the son of promise, never wavering. Joshua, you know, the world says, don't force, I'm not going to force religion on my kids. I'm going to leave it up to them. You know what Joshua said is, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Amen? And as long as my kids live in my house, they'll be at church on Sunday and Wednesday, and I don't care if they're 25 years old. Get up, we're going to church. Amen? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You don't have to go to church, but you don't have to live here. We're going to honor God. And that needs to be our heart. What, are we, what kind of heritage are we giving to our kids? I love this little story. I'm not one to read most of these, but a woman by the name of Davida Dalton said, it was a busy day in our Costa Mesa, California home, but then with 10 children, one, a, one on the way, every, every day is a bit hectic. Yeah, I guess so. On this particular day, however, I was having trouble doing even the most routine chore, all because of one of my little boys, Len who was about three at the time, it was on my heels no matter where I went. Whenever I stopped to do something and turned back around, I would trip over him. Several times I patiently suggested fun activities to keep him occupied. Wouldn't you want to go play in your swing set? I asked him again. He simply smiled and said, Oh, that's all right, Mommy. I'd rather be here with you. Then he continued to bounce happily along behind her. After stepping on his toes for the fifth time, I began to lose my patience and insisted that he go outside and play with the other children. When I asked him why he was asking this, acting this way, he looked at me, up at me with the sweet green eyes and said, Well, Mommy, our Sunday school teacher told us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, but I can't see him, so I'm walking in yours. You know what? Our kids 
can't see Jesus, but they can see us. And God's called us to be like Abraham, giving that inheritance to Isaac. To be that godly dad, the godly mom who represents him to the Lord. And we must not make the mistake of trading our birthright for anything. Don't give up God's plan for your life in pursuit of that which is temporary. So, thanks for your patience in closing. Life lessons for the believer. Remaining faithful even when you're hurting. It's God's call for our life. He's faithful God. He's not done with us yet. Finishing strong. Living a life full, living a full and satisfied life. That's the life that God has for you. It's not an empty life. It's a full life. A godly heritage doesn't always lead to salvation. God has no grandchildren. Don't put your faith in who your parents were. It doesn't matter if your great aunt and uncle were missionaries. Who are you with Jesus Christ? Number four, waiting on the Lord is not punishment, but preparation. You're going through a time of waiting. God's preparing you. Trust him. Number five, a man of the world or a man of the spirit. Which one describes you? Someone who's a man of the world pursuing the world or someone who's close by the Lord? And as an example of him. And then finally, trading God's blessing for a bowl of soup. Living for now with no thought of tomorrow. May we not give up God's plan for our life for anything. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, so many different lessons in this chapter. So many different people to look at, Lord. And we just thank you, Father, that you give us examples that we can follow. We thank you for the example of Abraham. That he wasn't a perfect man, but he was your man. And Lord, we know that all of them are mere pictures of our ultimate example, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to walk after you, to serve you. Help us, Lord, not to let the things of this world get in the way of your calling upon our lives. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and not on the world. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We can't wait to that day when we receive our ultimate inheritance, when we are in your presence forevermore. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said.